Welcome to the Tax Girl Podcast, your home for tax news, tax info, and tax policy. In each episode, I'll share conversations about taxes, money, and the choices that we make. I'm your host, Kelly phillips for Tax Girl. I'm a practicing tax attorney, and I work with taxpayers like you every day. There's a lot to talk about, so let's get started. You may already know that tax authorities offer incentives for taxpayers to share information about tax evasion and other crimes. At the federal level, the IRS Whistleblower Office accepts tips from individuals who have information about tax fraud in exchange for a monetary award. But there are caveats, lots of caveats. The most significant, under the law, an award will be paid when the amount identified by the whistleblower, including taxes, penalties, and interest, is more than $2 million. If the taxpayer is an individual, they must have at least $200,000 in gross income. For most taxpayers, that means that making a complaint about someone else generally won't result in money in your pocket. Many states also have whistleblower laws. Here to talk about the increasing importance of whistleblower laws in tax enforcement, in particular, the IRS Whistleblower Program and the New York False Claims Act, which allows whistleblowers to sue tax cheats on behalf of the government for a reward of up to 30%, is Gregory Krakauer. Gregory is an adjunct professor at Cardozo Law School, where he teaches whistleblower statutes and corporate fraud, class that he established in 2015. He has worked for the past five years as a whistleblower attorney in private practice, representing whistleblowers and victims of corporate fraud. Prior to being in private practice, Krakauer served as senior advisor and counselor to the New York State Attorney General, as well as the director of the New York State Senate Policy Group, where he was the principal staff counsel assigned to draft and negotiate the 2010 New York Fraud Enforcement Recovery Act which amended the New York False Claims Act to, among other things, include a provision to empower, protect, and reward New York task whistleblowers. Thanks so much for being here today. Oh, thank you for having me. Um, it's my, my first podcast, so I'm a bit of a noob, so uh, I very much appreciate it. Well, I am honored to be the, the first to host you on a podcast. So first of all, um, Let's bring our readers and our listeners up to speed on what whistleblowing is, because I think it sounds really dramatic. Um, and in some cases, of course, it certainly is. But what is it generally? Well, there are many different. Thank you. First of all, thank you for having me. There are many different phrases and things that come to mind when the word whistleblower. There's the national security whistleblower you read about. There's the Ed, Edward Snowden's of the world. Some people think are whistleblowers and some are not. So there's no really definition of whistleblower, but in the kind of whistleblower that uses laws to, to enforce certain types of frauds, a whistleblower is typically, at a minimum, someone who brings information to the government under certain programs that provide them with one or more of the following benefits. There are whistleblower laws that protect whistleblowers from retaliation. So if you report illegal conduct or defined conduct to the government, uh, you cannot be fired or harassed or discriminated against by one's employer. That's protection at a minimum. If you don't have whistleblower protections for retaliation, you're really not a whistleblower in this context. In addition to protecting whistleblowers, some programs reward whistleblowers. So if you bring forward information, you can earn a reward, a monetary award from the government for doing that. And that's protection and reward. And then there's some whistleblower laws 
such as principally the False Claims Act, that actually empower whistleblowers to bring a lawsuit on behalf of the government, or on behalf of some other victim, and actually start a legal action on behalf of the government. And if they win, they get a reward. So it's protection, empowerment, and reward. And that's the sort of the universe of corporate fraud whistleblowing that we're talking about. Can we talk about information? Because when I know this is something we're going to talk about throughout, but kind of just to start, you mentioned information about tax fraud. And, and that's sort of the underlying, I guess, premise of a lot of these statutes, these whistleblower laws. But what kind of information are we talking? Because I mean, there's always somebody who's like, I think my neighbor is cheating on their taxes because he said he only paid, let's say, $750. But I know that he lives in a $5 million home. So, you know, there's lots of people who think they know things, but what kinds of information are we talking about when we're talking about bringing this up at the government level? Some statutes define it differently, but so there's two, there's two separate answers to that question. One is, what type of information does one have that could be worthy to the government? And one is, what are background of how one got that information that could affect one's rights? Ultimately, the information that the government wants is information that can put it on notice to trigger an investigation. Very few whistleblowers, particularly in tax, and your analogy is very apt, have the full story. Even successful whistleblowers often start out with what I call, it's a jigsaw puzzle with a lot of pieces missing. And you kind of think you know what the picture is, but there's lots of details that whistleblowers often don't have. I mean, sure, some whistleblowers can come and bring a case on the platinum platter. So whistleblowers do not have to prove at the outset, either under federal or state programs, the fraud. They should have enough information that gets the government interested. Something that be, you know, it runs the gamut, right? Of like really strong initial bouts of information to less so. My personal favorite when I was in government and uh, working in the New York State Attorney General's office, and I suppose in private practice too, is double books. That's a great case. Someone walks in your office with here are the tax records and forms that my employer is submitting to the government to pay taxes. And here are the actual books and here's where he's or she has hidden the cash. That's a, that's a nice walk-in. Yes. <laughs> the sort of vague, you know, then you have whistleblowers who look at invoices. And so the archetype, Kelly, the archetype whistleblower of being an inside employer or an accountant, those are my, right? That is, everything's whistleblowers in the movies. It's, it's always someone inside the company. But not all whistleblowers have to be that. Some whistleblowers can be experts and outsiders. And they look at public documents and they say to themselves, you know, that's not right. I I see what this company is doing publicly and it doesn't make sense to me. I'm an expert in, you know, arcane taxation or maybe even not arcane tax, or maybe I'm an expert in sales tax and I go to a store and I buy something and I say, that store didn't charge me something. Uh, and you go and you that they should have for sales tax. And you look at other receipts from that stores, and then you look at other stores. And then so there are whistleblowers who are not employees and not insiders. And sometimes you have, like in, certainly in the SEC and, and tax, you have experts that can look at public documents and sort of saying, you know, I know some very complicated issue of tax exchanges, and that one doesn't make sense to me. And essentially, they're not insiders, but they're providing expertise to the government to say, you need to look at that company from these documents, which some of which I may have found publicly, show me that's not wrong. But as a legal sense, the information should be 
under the IRS law, original, meaning the government doesn't have that information or that analysis. So I guess what I'm saying is original information can be also original analysis, but it should be something in the IRS program that the government doesn't have. In most False Claims Act, it's a different standard. The information shouldn't be publicly disclosed in a certain way. In the New York False Claims Act, if the information has been publicly disclosed by the government, a whistleblower might be precluded from the reward program. You can't pick up the newspaper and say, hypothetically, I know this is a crazy analogy, but hypothetically, if a newspaper prints something that like, I don't know, the president of the United States might have a tax problem, how could that happen? Right. You, right. you can't you can't pick up the New York Times and run to the to the the IRS or New York State and say I'm a whistleblower because of what I just read in the New York Times. Right. So that can be a problem if there is a public disclosure of information on the False Claims Act in the IRS program. It could be a problem if the government has information, um, even if it hasn't been publicly disclosed. So that's background of you know when whistle. That's why, as you said, there are lots of caveats. That's one of them. So I'm, I'm kind of curious about the third party because, you know, I think all of us kind of understand the insider. Like, again, it makes for a great movie, but then also you kind of get it. Like if you're the employee and you feel like your employer has been cheating, you know, that's an incentive and the money is a mo- uh, another incentive, but maybe not always the primary incentive. What would be the incentive of that third party? Would it be, you know, the expert or someone who is bringing information who's not an insider? Would it be just financial or do you think it's this idea of fairness or, or what makes people come forward? Almost always insider or outside whistleblowers that I've ever seen. The motivation is not financial rewards. Okay. There are some now self-appointed uh, fraud finders that try to make a profession out of find, using their expertise to find fraud. And, and you know, under the law, they're whistleblowers. It's a different kind of model. But most whistleblowing is psychologically, socially, and often economically, insider or outsider, very, very hard. In New York, you know, for one thing, you can be an outsider and blow the whistle on somebody. But if you're in that industry, you, know, you can end up being blacklisted by other companies in the industry. Mm-hmm. You know, person in New York, we actually wrote a law that protects whistleblowers. So that company Y is not allowed to refuse to hire someone who blew the whistle on company X in their industry. And of course, in New York and in the IRS, we, we, we attempt to keep whistleblowers anonymous. In New York, you can actually sometimes in, in the IRS, you can win an award and no one company may, may not in, in, in certain cases in New York, even, even though you're filing a lawsuit, there are ways you can actually protect your anonymity. So the company doesn't know you've ever filed a lawsuit. Not, never 100% guarantee. Right. Um, but we try to keep whistleblowers anonymous. But it is very, very difficult. So, you know, are there some that like, ooh, this is a reward? Yes. And that's the point. You want to provide an incentive to be integrity. And in fact, and one of the quirky things about the False Claims Act, which gives whistleblowers the power to sue on behalf of the government, is that it's all derived from a law that Abe Lincoln wrote. Oh, actually gosh. called the Lincoln Law. That's not a tax law. The, the False Claims Act covers all fraud against the United States government, but taxes. But it's actually the Lincoln Law. Lincoln wrote it to address Civil War era contracting fraud. The idea was if you saw a fraud against the Union Army, which was being ripped off left and right by contractors, uh, Congress did a report of horses were sick ponies you know, in the age of cavalry. That was a big deal. You know, gunshots were filled with uh, sawdust instead of gunpowder. So he wrote the False Claims Act, which gave anyone the power to sue a, someone who had defrauded the government, a company in particular, and they'd get a reward. 
that law was revived in the 1980s. And in the federal law, they wrote out taxes. You cannot use, you cannot sue somebody on behalf of the federal government for taxes. You can for any other type of government fraud. Ultimately, in 2006, Congress passed a separate tax whistleblower program with the IRS, where whistleblowers don't sue a company on behalf of the government, simply report a tip to the IRS. And if the IRS gets a reward based, a, a recovery based on that, the whistleblower can get uh, up to 30%, typically 15 to 30% of what the IRS gets. But it's not a lawsuit on taxes. In New York and Illinois, you can actually sue a company on behalf of the government for tax fraud, also get 15 to 30% in that way. So the IRS program is a, whistle, is a tax, what I call a tipster program, meaning you're providing the government with a tip. And if they get something, get a reward versus the False Claims Act in New York and Illinois, where you're actually suing, you're actually taking the mantle of the government and suing a company for tax fraud for that reward. So that, that's a different of the two programs. And what's the rationale for New York and Illinois doing that differently than, say, the federal government? Like, is it efficiency? Like, what is the, the kind of the motivation for allowing citizens to bring the suits as opposed to the feds where you're just given the tip? Well, I can't, I can't speak to Illinois because that actually is a very, it's actually a very different program than New York in, in certain ways. But the way, but for False Claims Act in general, it's an old type of lawsuit called QUITAM, Q-U-I-T-A-M. And one response is it forces the government to look at something. So the big difference with filing a lawsuit in a, in a False Claims Act model versus the IRS is that in the lawsuit model, and you type with the IRS and the IRS isn't interested, your whistleblower case is essential is over. Mm-hmm. You have no recourse. The IRS says, we're not interested in this. Right. It's actually, as, as an aside, you often see cases brought in tax court where whistleblowers are angry <laughs> that they either didn't get the uh, attention they thought they deserved or they didn't get compensation for what they felt was a tip after the fact. And, you know, there are obviously certain factors, but it, this is, it's clear. Um, again, if you read U.S. tax court cases, that there are people who report and are angry that their tip doesn't go anywhere. I don't think in the federal program you can sue because you don't think the IRS listened to your tip. Oh, no, they do in tax court. They do. I mean, I think what happens is that it might be a case that has, um, because their, their, uh, their opinions, actually, there was a whistleblower one released in October. There are cases that they bring where they feel like that their piece of information should have been key to an investigation. So it's not a, it's not a random, I don't want to suggest that it was a, you know, someone is suing because they turned Kelly Urban and the IRS didn't, didn't follow through, but there are actions that are brought more often than I expected where folks are angry because they feel like they should have been paid for their information. Correct. Feel like the IRS didn't listen to them, that they had a different piece of information that the IRS did not listen to in an investigation and they will try to sue and recover. And there's a lot of case law about that. I think there's a difference between what there is case law and people who sue the IRS because they think they should be paid or they think that, and, and the IRS doesn't communicate always as well with, with whistleblowers as, as, it, as it should or could. But I don't think you can sue to, I mean, you can sue for anything, but it, the, the law is fairly clear that the IRS has full discretion 
Well, yeah, I don't mean to imply that they're they're suing to force the IRS to, to right. make something more of the tip. But I'm just saying yeah. there's a lot of cases where people feel like their tip was overlooked in an investigation. You can sue the IRS if you think you provided a formal tip and the IRS recovered. You don't think you got your reward. Yes. But in the False Claims Act, if the government doesn't take over your litigation, the lawsuits go to the government under seal. It's secret. The defendant doesn't know they've been sued. Sometimes the defendant cannot know they've been sued for years. The whistleblower has the right, a qualified right, a right to bring the lawsuit anyway. So in New York State, for example, there was a whistleblower who sued Moody's. And the government was not declined to take a stand in the litigation. They declined to take over the case. Okay. If this were like the federal program, you'd be done. The IRS would say, we're not interested. We're not going after Moody's, right? But in New York, the whistleblower and, and the False Claims Acts, the whistleblower can sue the defendant anyway. In fact, it's a higher reward. If the government does not intervene in your whistleblower case and the reward is 25 to 30% as opposed to 15 to 25% with some caveats you can go lower on, on occasion. So Moody's was a, the first example in New York where the whistleblower went on when the state of New York was not, did not intervene in the case and got a reward, ultimately got a reward. I think the New York State got 8.5 million in recovery uh, for that case. And the government had not intervened. It was solely brought, litigated, and brought to a settlement by the whistleblower. It would involve, and involved a very technical issue involving a captive insurance company. So I think the main difference of false claims acts, tax whistleblowing, and the IRS, which is the IRS isn't interested and actually doesn't get a recovery. I mean, maybe there are lawsuits, but you can't force the IRS to, to take a tax enforcement action. Right. You can under a false claims act. It's designed to augment the government's resources by allowing whistleblowers and their counsel to continue tax litigation without intervention by the government. And in fact, you get a higher reward for it. That said, I have never seen either in the government or private practice any whistleblower who wanted that. You almost always, been in this for 10 years, at least from helping write the statute, always want the government and sometimes plead with the government to intervene in your case. Right. Because it would be, I would think, financially really difficult for a third party to bring a lawsuit using their own resources. It is. And it's even, and I will say, these, you know, and it's the lawyers are, it's, on, it's for the lawyers to do this, it's almost always on a contingency basis. Okay. The good news for whistleblowers is that the statutes require the defendants to pay legal fees if there is a settlement or a victory. Attorney's fees and costs. In New York False Claims Act, a defendant found liable for tax fraud under the False Claims Act has to pay triple damages, which includes consequential damages, such as interest. Well, at least you know, it's never been ruled on by a court, but that's, that's, the statute says consequential damages, which presumably includes interest, plus civil penalties. And then they have to pay the attorney's fees of the whistleblower on top of that. It's really unusual in litigation. I don't know if, if my listeners know that, but typically speaking in litigation, there is not the, um, it's not an automatic award of attorney's fees if you win a case. So that's pretty unusual. Yeah, it's unusual for exactly the reason you said, Kelly. These cases can be very expensive. They can be very long. Cases can be under seal for years in False Claims Act cases. 
certainly of the IRS, is a very slow process. It's very long. Obviously, defendants, when the government doesn't intervene, eventually the defendant learns about the case and goes through normal litigation and says, the government's not even interested in this. Why are we here? So the attorney's fees is a very important part of the whistleblower statute, both in retaliation, if the whistleblower is just saying my employer discriminated against me, as well as legal fees for the actual rewards for the tax cut, because it's so long, so arduous. And also it's to create a disincentive. The government in allowing citizens to sue on its behalf wants to augment its resources and wants you know, high quality, good counsel, good litigation. Because mm-hmm. the government might decline, not because it doesn't think there's a tax fraud, but because it thinks this is a case where the whistleblower can do it on their own. It's worth it. You know, the government has limited resources. And the idea of tax whistleblowing is, and KETAM, KETAM being whistleblower lawsuits, is, boy, you know, we're under-resourced with the government. So especially for complicated lawsuits against wealthy, large businesses or wealthy individuals, and New York's law only applies to wealthy or large individuals, which I think is why it's been extremely successful. And in fact, California is contemplating passing one, and they really need to do that, is that the government, as opposed to shying away from that, can augment. It's a force multiplier to get an army of of high-quality whistleblowers and their lawyers to bring lawsuits. And in New York, there's been almost no abuse, and actually none. There has been no, there hasn't been a lot of lawsuits. You know, when, when we passed the law, Certain tax, pr- tax practitioners warned about this flood of litigation. Rich people all over New York would be sued and businesses would be sued and the state would collapse and lightning would fall and tax administration would collapse. New York State has had this for 10 years. There's been fewer than 30 lawsuits reported. There has been no flood of litigation, no trickle of litigation, no due. And the litigation that has been brought has recovered the largest sales tax case in state history if not American history, um, against Sprint's Nextel, where New York State paid a whistleblower $63 million and recovered over 300 hedge funds. We have hedge funds in New York. <laughs> and one pretended it was in Alabama. That, that Sprint case, was that brought by the um, attorney general or was that brought by the taxpayer? Well, both. It was a whistleblower case. I was in the government when it came. It started as a whistleblower case. And the New York state government took it over. So that was when they, they, they took on. Yeah, the government took it. All right, that was great. The only, the only recovery, I, of which I'm aware of, that's a non-intervened, was the Moody's case, which was just, I think, uh, last year. This was an intervened case. We litigated it. I was in government for six years. Sprint took it to our highest court. They lost at every level. They lost at every judge. They litigated this forever. But ultimately, not only were they found to have, or they did fine, but they actually settled. You know, the False Claims Act is a fraud statute, so it requires a defendant to at least be reckless. Mm-hmm. You can't just be wrong under New York. You have to be reckless. Okay. Reckless or knowingly. And while they settled, you know, the attorney general said that the whistleblower had correctly identified a deliberate, massive sales tax fraud. And I can tell you, the funny thing about that case is when we wrote the law, we were targeting, I was at the state Senate, we thought the big cases would be Wall Street. We're New Yorkers, right? That's what we think, Wall Street tax cheats. And in fact, we've, we've had, we had a hedge fund. I can talk about the Alabama case, which was brought by my firm, uh, uh, Gatnick and Gatnick. They did a great job on it. You know, but, but the amazing thing was the largest case by far was not a hedge fund case, but was a sales tax case. And what was so strange is that we never thought any company 
would not collect sales taxes because it's not their money. Right. It's sales taxes are paid for by the consumer. So it was shocking that the first big case that we saw, and we saw it almost instantly, this was, you know, we passed the statute and the government intervened in a hundred million dollar tax fraud within a, a year, with, you know, a year and a half of, I think, setting up the bureau. My dates are a little off, it's 2011 and 12. And it wasn't their money. They just assumed they could just, and this was alleged in the government's complaint, deliberately knock off part of their sales taxes to make their product cheaper without making it better. And what I like people to think about when you think about a sales tax key tam, and there have been several, several sales tax cases, none as large as the Sprint one, was that tax whistleblowing and sales taxes is a pro-business statute. When you have a sales tax cheat, and there have been several settlements under New York State for sales tax cheating, it means competitors, small businesses often, sometimes large businesses, are at a disadvantage for complying with the law. Right. They pay a penalty. We call it an, we just call it an integrity penalty. One actually great source, I talked about you know, there are different types of whistleblowers. One great source of whistleblowing are competitors who know the industry and say, my competitor's tax policy can't possibly be right. Or a senior employee or an accountant, and we love accountant whistleblowers, goes from one company to another and says, my last company, man, they, they, their tax practices were out of whack. Right. And I told them they were out of whack. Well, you know, that's a great whistleblower. One of the, so one of your, your, your former podcasts, someone said, there really isn't that strong accountant client privilege. I was at a tax seminar and I remember an accountant raised their hand. It was I think, at the New York tax bar. And I, was, I was in government. and said, well, I have a question. You just said this tax whistleblower, can you sue accountants for helping their clients illegally evade New York taxes? And I said, yes. The False Claims Act allows you not only to sue the taxpayer for tax fraud, but you can sue anyone who causes the taxpayer or conspires with to avoid taxes also. So an accountant says, so if I am reckless with my client, can I be sued under the False Claims Act? And I looked and there was a big audience and I said, yes, but I have, I have a solution. You can also be a whistleblower. Oh, so you can, you can actually turn in fraud that you are a participant in? Yes. Yes, you can. The statute is designed, this is the New York False Claims Act, and I believe the IRS too. You cannot have, quote, planned or initiated the fraud. Okay. If you devise the scheme, no, you can't get a reward for a scheme. You quote, the law says, quote, planned or initiated. But the law is designed with that, you know, whistleblower or accountant or, or, or executive in mind. The boss says, do this. The client says, do this. You do it. You don't want to be fired. You go home. You can't sleep. You're worried. You're, you're morally outraged. Mm -hmm. And you have participated in the fraud. In fact, those are often the best whistleblowers because they know what went on. Right. And they have that inside information. Right. Do you have to go to the government and make sure that you, know, you don't have criminal exposure? Yes. And if you planned or initiated, by the way, your reward gets reduced if you're planned or initiated. It doesn't necessarily get eliminated. It does get eliminated if someone is criminally convicted of conduct relevant to the tax fraud. As an 1880 case said about when the Lincoln first wrote the law, which was not a tax whistleblowing law, but was a federal fraud whistleblower law, it sometimes takes a rogue to catch a rogue. That's a famous whistleblower law phrase. So yes, 
You cannot participate in the law. You can leave your employer. In New York, we actually protected from taking documents and giving it to your KTAM counsel and taking documents and giving it to the government. That's called a, as long as it's a lawful access of those documents, you're actually protected. Even if there's a confidentiality agreement, you're protected in, under New York law that said you can't, you can't hack into your, right. you have to legally access. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But the law actually wants, look, the ideal whistleblower law in a tax whistleblowing case is an, an accountant who knows it, right? I heard someone say, you know, you were joking about this, that uh, tax, you know, tax accountants, you know, I think it was a bookkeeper you had on, said um, a client walked into my office with double books and, and you guys had a discussion about, do you take a client who walks in uh, with double books? That is a very different analysis to a whistleblower lawyer. <laughs> a client walks in with double books. Yeah, we take that client. <laughs> That's the best. We want double books. That's the best. Here, here's the tax records. Here's the tax forms. Uh, by the way, you know, here's the money in Hong Kong. Right. Do most of these cases initiate with someone going to the tax authorities or do they involve folks seeking out a, a whistleblower attorney? Like how, how do these cases initiate generally? I don't want to speak generally because I mean, okay. I, only, I only have a small sure. universe. I mean, in one New thing York. you don't want, you don't think you don't want to do in New York is go to the newspapers first, because once it's publicly disclosed, you might have a problem being a, right. a whistleblower. You know, often, I think the biggest shock from whistleblowers that I hear is that a whistleblower goes to the authorities and doesn't feel like they listen to her or him. Okay. I went to the authorities. I told them this. If it's not a whistleblower law program, I didn't hear from them. I don't feel listened to. Or the government is not, I don't feel they're going to do the right thing. Right. That may or may not be true. And then sort of in frustration, they contact a whistleblower lawyer. Right. In government, we sometimes had the, the ethical dilemma. Ethics might be too strong a word, but the policy dilemma of what happens if someone brings information to the government that could be a good tax whistleblower case, and they don't know about the whistleblower law. Actually, it's one of the reasons why I think this, this podcast is so important, or get whistleblower laws as public policy only work if people out there know they exist. Right. So there are all kinds. You know, sometimes someone, you know, you never know how cl clients hear about whistleblower law. Sometimes they Google, sometimes they see something in the news, maybe a podcast, maybe an article. Obviously, the internet's very helpful. You know, and, and one thing you do is when, you know, whistleblowers sometimes aren't sophisticated seekers of legal help. Right. So I always say, you know, a good whistleblower lawyer who tries to talk you out of being a whistleblower. These are not get-rich-quick schemes there or, 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 or ways. <laughs> I, I say schemes, so I'm used to the defendants, of course, ones with sure, schemes, but they're, they're, sometimes they can be very long. The government can keep us in KETAM, in, in, the, in the False Claims Act, and in the IRS program, cases can be under seal or under investigation for years and years. I was going to ask you about timing because I, as a tax attorney, I know how slow both state and federal authorities can move. And that's when, you know, there's the initiation on part of the government. So I can imagine that these cases rarely are settled in, you know, short periods of time. I imagine they do largely take years, especially when you start talking about like the dollar amounts that you were talking about in the Sprint case. Like I would assume that that takes time to not only investigate, but kind of work its way through the court. It does when you argue that the tax law doesn't say what it clearly says for six years. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I was in the appellate division where the appellate judge asked Sprint's lawyers, 
Are you saying this comma doesn't exist in the statute because I'm looking at it? A comma? Yeah. Wow. That was not a key part of the case, but it was <laughs> every company is allowed to a defense. And if, if you want to say the word and doesn't mean and, fine. That is something we spend a lot of time on in law school, figuring out uh, commas and words and yeah. Yeah. And keep in mind under the False Claims Act, and I mean to pick on defendants, you know, you do have to show in New York and Illinois that the defendant acted recklessly. It's not just, there's actually a legislation in New York to actually create a tax whistleblower provision that does not require a defendant to have acted recklessly, which would, of course, take, which would also, by the way, take away treble damages, Mm -hmm. which are mandatory from such a defendant. But tax law can be complicated. Right. And one of the problems, or I believe, and I'm speaking for myself here, with the Illinois law is that Illinois does not limit tax whistleblowing to just large corporations and wealthy people. In Illinois, which only covers sales tax, New York covers income tax, sales tax, property tax, and pretty much anything. Mm -hmm. Some question on the state tax, but certainly income and and sales and, and property. Illinois only covers sales tax, but doesn't have the threshold. And Illinois has had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of more cases filed against smaller businesses. The Attorney General of Illinois has dismissed cases on their own accord over the objection of the whistleblower, which can happen. New York's thresholds, meaning it only applies to defendants that have a million dollars net sales or income, and the damages have to be $350,000, has eliminated all, really all, after 10 years we know this, abuse. And it is encouraging that this law, which I believe California is really struggling to pass, but in times of fiscal crisis, why we want to let, you know, whether you think taxes should be raised or not on the rich. I would like to think we can all agree that wealthy people and large corporations should pay the taxes on the books. And by empowering whistleblowers and limiting their financial incentive to those large, important cases, whether it be sales or income tax, New York has shown that that's a, that's, that's a model that works and, and does not lead to a flood of litigation. You know, I'm not going to pick on Illinois, but, but you know, there is interesting that they've had a lot, <laughs> hundreds of more cases, even though Illinois is a smaller state that only covers sales taxes. Do you know if their law came after or before New York's? Before. I have no idea why. You know, you read it. The federal, so the Federal False Claims Act bars taxes. It's called the tax bar. It says any fraud against the government except taxes. Illinois copied that, but seemed to have written it by accident or not to only cover <laughs> a bar on income taxes. It's kind of just, you know, I don't know if that was deliberate or not because it was a long time ago. Right. New York took a deliberate approach. And by the way, I don't want to, you know, pick an Illinois. There have been some firm in Illinois that's filed lots of cases. And, and sometimes, you know, you had a, they had a sales tax case in Illinois where they won. And then they brought one in New York because it was a large company, mm-hmm. which they won. That was against MyPillow, which was also committing sales tax violations. Uh, the MyPillow guy with the pillow and the. Yes. <laughs> Well, I think it's famous now, yes. A whistleblower, you know, blew the whistle on that and uh, hopefully sleeping easier tonight. Do you know if, um, I know you mentioned California, do you know if any other states are looking at this, even if they aren't introducing it in the legislature? The District of Columbia has gotten the most advanced thing of a, of a, of a tax was of a KETAM model, False Claims Act model for the district. They've had problem passing it because their revenue officer is opposed to it which to me makes no sense at all. Our tax department was completely in favor of our statute when we wrote it. 
I know bills have been introduced, I believe, in Michigan, but the, the one that got further is California because the California State Assembly passed it. And there are other states that, that, that their False Claims Act technically covers taxes, but there's just not a lot of action there so far. Um, I think Nevada's covers taxes and Delaware's. They just didn't have a tax bar in their statute at all. Mm-hmm. But the real action has been in New York and Illinois, and particularly in New York, which not only passed the law, but when I was at the attorney general's office, after the law was passed, we established a specific bureau to enforce it called the Taxpayer Protection Bureau. And they're wonderful people there. Now, this bureau, to me, it's always been new, but it's actually you know, almost 10 years old now. Mm-hmm. And they're the ones who, both for tax and for contract fraud, Medicaid fraud is handled in a different bureau, but for tax fraud, they know how this statute works. So they know about intervening and not intervening and keeping a case under seal, which is a very important aspect of this law that you have these lawsuits. There are legal tools for whistleblowers, even when suing, to keep themselves anonymous. Particularly, whistleblowers can incorporate and create an LLC. So the name on the caption isn't Kelly Herb, it's tax justice for pillows or whatever you can call your you call your right. LLC, anything you, know, you, can, you, can call, you can call Halloween LLC. <laughs> right. And in New York, the government sort of has, has sort of, shouldn't I say sort of, the government has approved that model of shielding the whistleblower. And I think the IRS is completely confidential. You can never guarantee an anonymity in a key tan because if it goes to trial, the whistleblower could be a witness. Right. But through setting up an LLC with a, through hopefully the government intervenes, you can keep it from the anonymous. And particularly a rule in New York that I'm particularly proud of, which I drafted, is if the government doesn't intervene in New York, so the case is under seal, you brought a tax fraud to New York and the government's not interested. While you have the power to continue, you certainly don't have to continue the case as the whistleblower, but in New York, you can withdraw the case under seal. So no one ever knows you filed it other than the government. So if if listeners are thinking to themselves, maybe they know something. So I know I, I have, you mentioned accountants. I know I have a lot of tax professionals who listen to the show as well as individuals. If someone is sitting in their car in their living room listening and they're thinking, you know what, I think I know somebody or a corporation that this applies to. What are kind of the the questions that you would want to leave them with that they need to consider before reaching out to an attorney or a tax authority? Like we've talked about thresholds, obviously, but what other kinds of, and I know you've talked a little bit about, you know, that there are laws intended to prevent retribution, you know, so that your job would be protected. But what other kinds of things should they be thinking about before moving ahead? First of all, think about not doing it. It is very hard to be a whistleblower. Anonymity cannot, cannot be guaranteed. Mm-hmm. It's a long road. I always say a good whistleblower lawyer tries to talk a whistleblower out of it, or at least makes them aware of, of the risks. You know, the IRS is more confidential, less of a risk, but no, because it, it can always go to trial. Um, who are you? You know, there's a problem with lawyer. Well, there's no problem with, 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 with accountants being whistleblowers. Typically, lawyers cannot be, a, I think most would agree, and certainly the case law suggests that lawyers cannot blow the whistle on their client. Because accountants, of yeah, it's treaty client privilege, correct. And, 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 and the cases have said that even if there's a crime fraud exception, there's something unethical in the, in the state bar, in, in, in state bar codes. That suggests lawyers cannot be paid to be whistleblowers against their own clients, even if there's actual fraud. Right. That's something to be considered. And no, 
as I teach my students, you can't be a lawyer and just then call your friend and say, well, you bring the case. (laughs) (laughs) Right. The government is going to want to know everything about you. So any skeletons and including if you participated in the fraud, there are ways to approach the government if you think someone's participated in the fraud to sort of get a nod. You know, is it okay if I bring in my client or, you know, here's the fact pattern, but you can't guarantee the government's not, if your client has, if you have participated in the fraud, what's going to happen? Although typically in New York, I don't think New York has ever gone after a whistleblower. Maybe the feds do a little bit more. Your family, this is going to be not easy. The government's going to want to work with you. Mm-hmm. The best whistleblowers and their counsel are the, and the ones that partner with the government. I mean, I've seen whistleblowers in Medicaid case, they have war rooms with the government and they're there at nights and they're going over documents. I mean, whistleblowers are the experts, right? The government's, what's the government going to do all these documents? Well, they're going to ask the whistleblower for help. There could be a lot of time commitment. Ultimately, in the key TAM, there could be a litigation. And then, you know, has your information been publicly disclosed, you know, in the news media or in a government report? Do you think the IRS might have the information already? Do you think someone else has filed a case? You know, in KETAM, only the first whistleblower is entitled to a reward. It's a first to file rule. It's also why you just can't sit and let your defendant rack up damages, right? Well, I, I found they just started this fraud. Can't I file 10 years from now? Because the New York, New York False Claims Act has a 10-year statute of limitations. Uh, no, because, well, maybe, but the law creates a disincentive to just sit and wait because only the first whistleblower walks through the door. So you could sit there and prepare a case, spend hours and hours with your attorneys going over documents. You know, it's on contingency, so you're not paying. And then you find out someone got there first. Is that true, even if your information is better? Is that a weird question? <laughs> no, but it's, it's, it's a great question. I teach a whole class on that. But, the, but the, you know, I'm trying not to be dorky. I'm not a tax lawyer, <laughs> so, but I'm a whistleblower lawyer. So I'm, um, you know, look, my son, when he was four, when he thought, heard, heard I worked in whistleblower, and so I was in government, actually thought I was blowing a kazoo. It's not whether it's better. Mm-hmm. There are legal standards for when a second file case would not be barred by the first file case. Or if the information is material to the government, there can be an exception for like the public disclosure bar has an exception. Meaning okay. if, the, if, if the whistleblower told the government before the government disclosed it, they're an original source. So there's lots of legal standards. So yes, the answer is your information might be so material to the government under the public disclosure bar that you're, you're considered an original source, which means you're not covered by the disclosure bar. If the New York Times reports, again, hypothetically, don't be shocked, some president has some tax problems. Mm-hmm. Why would the president of the United States have tax problems? You know, and the New York Times lists A, B, C, and D, and you're sitting there with a bunch of stuff for me, and the New York Times hasn't published that, you could argue that was material, okay. and you'd escape and the first to file bar is a little trickier. The standards are a little different. But the, the, the bottom line is, and I, I knew I was going to go down that legal rabbit hole. The answer to your question is a definite 100% maybe. Uh, very good legal answer. <laughs> but, but, but yes, the, the, but it's not better. But there are, there are, no, look, the IRS might have information, but the analysis, they might, not, they might not have the analysis that you bring to them. So they might think, well, we had the information, but this whistleblower really had the analysis that led us to, to this tax recovery, and you might get something. So yes, I think there, there, are, uh, there are caveats, but in the False Claims Act, land, the first to file bar is jurisdictional. Or argue, well, you know, some say it's not jurisdictional. It depends. That's also a good legal answer. 
Well, thank you so much for this. This has been fascinating. If, if folks wanted to contact you and you wanted them to find you, where would you send them, either on the web or on social? I have a LinkedIn profile, Gregory Krakauer, which is a good way to reach. And I'll be sure to put that link in the, the show notes for folks. Thanks. Yeah. And I always answer questions, especially from journalists. My, my, my goal here is, as always, is to say you know, people who are out there who are potential whistleblowers, right? Our cities and states are under immense fiscal pressure. Our government is too. Right. With knowledge of fraud, need to know about whistleblower law. They need to know the availability of them. And that's the main thing. So I'm Gregory Krakauer. I have a LinkedIn page, right? Talk about tax whistleblowing and, and contract whistleblowing. You can always, of course, ask. I always recommend if people are finding an attorney, find one that's an expert in this area. It's a right. quirky area. But more importantly than that, you know, I think, you know, whistleblowers, you know, they, I made a joke about the MyPillow whistleblower sleeping at night. I don't know, I don't know whether that was the case in that case. But my biggest reward is when someone who really knows something and they're just wracked with, with, with pain and torture by it, you know, and these are often very big players. Right. And not only that, but if you're an accountant or someone in the, in the industry, you know, you're worried about blacklisting, you're worried about, you know, you might be worried about losing your license if your client has pushed the envelope. And the biggest reward I find is even if I'm, if I'm working as an attorney or I connect someone to another law firm is to help them, right. to, let, to get them something, something to know that someone will listen to you. The government is there to listen to you. Mm-hmm. And in fact understands the financial difficulties that whistleblowing can bring, understands the emotional and social risks, and thus has provided you with a reward for doing the right thing. Right. And we're all protected when people, you know, that old phrase, you know, do, you know, see something, say something. Well, without whistleblower laws, it's see something, say something and, and get fired and ostracized. <laughs> right, and, right. You know, so here the idea is see something, say something, been rewarded hopefully keep anonymous and certainly be applauded. Awesome. Well, thank you so much again for stopping by. I really appreciate it. Great. Thank you. I hope my first podcast. So if I a little blabbing, forgive me. I'll being professorial at times. Thank you. I'd love to know what you thought of this episode. You can send an email with your feedback to podcast at taxgirl.com. And if you liked it, please share. You can find the audio of each episode at taxgirl.com. You can also subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or your favorite listening app, so you never miss an episode. Thanks for listening, because paying taxes is painful, but hearing about them shouldn't have to be.